I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Be looking at verses 10 through 17 uh, this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, looking at a familiar but a good text in uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. If you take notes uh, on paper, you'll notice in the bulletin I've got a handout. You can use that if that's appropriate and helpful to you. As we come to this passage of Scripture, we come to a famous text that talks about gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble or straw, depending on which translation you're using. In order to prevent the Corinthians from boasting excessively in human leaders, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul reminds them of two things. First, in verses 1 through 9, as we've covered the last week, both Sunday morning and Sunday evening, he reminds him of the fact that all human leaders of the church are simply servants of God. Uh, we cannot produce things left to ourselves. The only one who produces spiritual growth is God. And so in verses 1 through 9, Paul's point is to remind them by saying, what is Paul and what is Apollos? They're simply servants. But then to also remind them not to boast extravagantly in the leaders in the church, Paul uh, informs this church that all human leaders are accountable to God for how they minister in the church. And that's what this text about gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble is all about. When we come to this passage, we need to consider a few important Uh, questions or areas of study. Uh, For instance, many students of the scriptures throughout the history of the interpretation of this passage come to it and ask if this text directly speaks of the judgment of apostles uh, and pastors or teachers, or if we can also extend it to be in reference to the judgment of all believers. For in this text, Paul will talk frequently of himself uh, as a wise master builder and Apollos as one who came along and built on the foundation. And so some people believe that this text just has to deal with pastors and teachers or the apostles in the early church. I want to suggest, however, that while that is the original context and that, that is what Paul is addressing, that by extension, it would be very wise for us to make application to our own lives as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. There are really only four texts in the entire New Testament that talk about the future judgment of believers in Jesus Christ. This is one of them. We read another this morning in our scripture reading in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says that every person every believer there, will give an account to the Lord. Uh, This is also mentioned in Romans 14, just a few verses in the middle of that chapter. And in Revelation 4 and 5, there's a discussion there about the judgment of believers. But I would say that uh, we can apply this to the judgment of any believer. For we are all ministers of Christ in the church. And I am not aware of a separate time of judgment for pastors and then one for like ordinary believers. And so as we go through this text, the original context is is Paul is calling the church 
to recognize that he and Apollos and people like them will be held accountable, but by extension, I think we can make the point that all believers will be held accountable before the Lord. So today we're going to talk about the future judgment of believers that will occur in heaven following the rapture of the church. Have you ever wondered what the judgment of believers will be like? What is it going to be like for all of us to stand before the Lord? As I've studied this and and come across different preaching and teaching about it, uh, you really come across like two major views. Some people believe that it will be a time of great mourning, judgment, and woe for the children of God. Um, I call this view the movie screen view. Okay. Where, uh, and I've heard this sometimes preached or taught that the, the lives of believers will be publicly displayed for everyone to see, right? And that this will be a time of sadness in some cases and shame for those of us who know Jesus Christ and yet have continued on in sin in this world. And, and they'll use texts that I think are very important, like turn to 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 5. They'll say, well, in this text, it talks about the fact that God will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So some people, as they look or think about the future judgment of believers, they'll say it's going to be like a large movie screen where all of our sins are publicly displayed, even the hidden counsels of the heart. But then there are other believers who say, no, 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 I don't like that idea and that view. What I like is, uh, and I call this view, the party view of the judgment. The party view. Now, there's no sadness in heaven. But what will be here is that it will only be a time where we recall the good things that believers do. None of our sins will be on the table at this judgment because, as Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, people who hold this view will sometimes say this, it's, it's a time of rejoicing and parting because there will be no tears in heaven. They might even quote Psalm 103 in verse 12 that says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me, right? And so as we come to this text of Scripture, I think we need to ask ourselves, which one of these two views is right, or is there a better view, perhaps somewhere in the middle? So look down at your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. 
If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. This text, I believe that Paul is considering the outcome of two different types of leaders in the church of Corinth and in the church. And so first of all, he considers worthy leaders of the church, and he makes the point in verses 10 through 14 that worthy leaders will receive reward in heaven for their ministry. So what I'd like to do is look at different aspects of the authentic or worthy sort of ministry that Paul describes in verses 10 through 14 to begin with here. I think first he describes the nature of worthy leadership in the church in verses 10 and 11. And this nature is manifested in three ways. First, it is God-given. If you look down in your Bibles at verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God that is given to me like a skilled master builder. Here I think Paul acknowledges the fact that his ministry as a church planter was a direct result of the enablement or the empowerment of God. In a sense, this text functions a bit like an indirect personal defense of Paul's apostolic ministry. He says, I have labored like a skilled master builder, but I want to draw your attention to the fact that he says it's only according to or in proportion to the grace of God. And so if this is a self-defense, Paul admits that it is only because of God's undeserved favor that he is able to minister in the church. And so from this point on through the text, into chapter 4, he'll quit mentioning specific names and personalities. He's not going to talk about Paul and Apollos anymore, but he's going to, like he did just earlier, keep the focus on God's role in ministry. And so authentic, genuine Christian ministry is God-given. It's based upon his grace to us. It is also, it also involves gifted, faithful people. Paul said in that text in verse 10 that he functioned like a skilled or a wise master builder, which means uh, that I, I think Paul is describing his church planting ministries like an architect or a chief carpenter who was concerned with proclaiming Jesus Christ as the foundation for the church. One man said it this way, he said, Paul's specialty was foundations, laying foundations. He was a church planter involved in evangelism. And he recognized that when he he went into a church like Corinth, that there was one thing that he really needed to get across. Remember 1 Corinthians 2.2? 1 Corinthians 2.2? Paul says, for I determined to know nothing among you except what or who? Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul was very concerned with Christ, with his crucifixion for sins, 
and his resurrection, he laid the foundation of Jesus Christ for the people of Corinth in the church that was planted there. Alternatively, though, he talks about other people like Apollos building on that foundation. And so Paul here is describing the foundation of the church and the ministry of another apostle who would come along after and build on that. And he gives a subtle rebuke or challenge to anyone who would follow him as he planted churches. And that is, if you're going to build on this worthy foundation, you better do so in an appropriate way. You better use your gifts in appropriate ways to keep people's focus on Jesus. And so in verses 10 and 11, we're talking about the nature of authentic ministry. It is God-given. It involves people using their gifts in the assembly. And then in the middle of verse, seven, or verse 11, it is also Christ-centered. Look with me again at verse 11, 1 Corinthians 3, 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Here, the very first word of verse 11 indicates or gives the reason or the ground why Christian ministers must be careful. Let each man take heed how he builds in the church because the foundation is the person, Jesus Christ. And he explains to us, I believe that Christ is both the foundation, the beginning point, and the ending point of true Christianity. He is the basis or the foundation of the church. And all ministry in the church must keep Christ as its focus and guideline. So if, if our ministry or conversation as a church is not upon Christ, then we should change. We should change. So that is what I call the nature of authentic or worthy leadership. But in verses 12 and 13, we see the works of worthy leaders being considered. Look with me at verse 12. It says, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Here in a time when churches feel the freedom to use many different methods to reach the lost, this passage is critical or crucial for the health of the church because in it, Paul makes the bold point that not all work done in the name of God is going to withstand the scrutiny of the Lord. There are two points that he makes here about our motives or our deeds in ministry. First, they are important. In verses 12 and 13, he mentions these six building materials. And uh, there is a little bit of controversy about how we should interpret them. Uh, some people like to say that all six building materials are legitimate. And they'll go through places in the Old Testament to show where some of these things were used in the production of important buildings in the Old Testament. Okay. So, for instance, in the construction of Solomon's temple, 
the builders built and used the first four ingredients in the list. Gold, silver, precious stones, and wood. Okay? So some scholars will come to this text and say all six are legitimate, that Paul's only concerned to talk about legitimate methods and practices in the church. I think where they run into problem is the last two, hay and straw. Okay? And unless they make like some sort of effort to, you know, in some cases they'll go back to like the Israelites in Egypt and say, you know, when they were building those buildings in Egypt, they hay, had hay and straw sometimes, uh, which I think is a little bit weak. But, but some people say it's all legitimate. Or the other way you could take this, and probably the way many of you have been raised to understand it, would be to divide the six building materials up into groups of three, right? Gold, silver, precious stones, stop. Wood, hay, and stubble. And the reason we divide them up into groups of three is because of the mention of fire in the text. Okay? So that the first three represent works and motivations that are legitimate and that will withstand the future judgment of Christ upon the church and upon leaders of the church. And that the last three represent things that will be consumed under the judgment or the close scrutiny of God. Okay, so in other words here, the, um, the last three, wood, hay, and stubble, rep, or the first three represent uh, non-combustible things, right? And the last three represent combustible things. But can we get any more specific than that? It appears to me, my study of this text, that the good elements, gold, silver, and precious stones, describe teaching in its content and in its delivery that rejects worldly wisdom worldly wisdom, and that adheres to the wisdom that proceeds from the Father. So why do you think that? Well, the word wisdom is used 27 times in chapters 1 through 5. Paul is concerned to talk about this. He's describing two different types of wisdom, and we kind of picked up on this, God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. So I propose to you that the building materials represent two different ways of ministering in a church. The Corinthians were emphasizing cultural wisdom, or Sophia. And they were drawn to oratorical invention and human giftedness as proclaimers of the truth instead of the cross of Jesus Christ. And God's wisdom. In other words, the materials under examination here are works which follow the world's wisdom and philosophy, or works that follow God's wisdom found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, so as we're working through the text, uh, in verses 12 and 13, Paul's describing the nature of the works of those who labor in the assembly. And I do believe that he's driving this twofold distinction between things that will endure the scrutiny of God in the end and things that will not. 
Now, in your notes, there's a place to write down two applications. And let me just draw these applications for our church, and then we'll move along farther in the text. First of all, if what I'm saying is true in this text, as we've worked down through it, it seems that one of the applications we can make is that uh, if a pastor, teacher, or member of the church adopts events or methods in their gatherings to appeal to lost people, that they are, they are guilty of using wood, hay, and stubble to build upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. For instance, if a pastor pulls lost people, surveys lost people, and asks them how they might be more comfortable in the worship services of the church, and then makes modifications or changes to the worship service according to the survey results, then we might suspect that much of that will be wood, hay, and stubble before the Lord. Right? I'm just drawing two applications for us. And you say, well, what pastor would ever survey lost people to find out what would make them more comfortable? And I would just say, um, many. Right? Many. Or they, they rely upon the survey results of some proposed experts. Right? And they incorporate that into the assembly. From my perspective, I don't know that much of that has a chance to withstand the close scrutiny of the Lord when we stand before him. But second, I'll draw another application here. When someone comes along and causes the church to become off-focused in their emphasis, he risks focusing on things that will not endure the fiery judgment of Christ. And in a bit of self-scrutiny here of of churches in America, I want to suggest that sometimes churches in contemporary America today can so focus on a peripheral issue that they as well are in danger of having wood, hay, and stubble before the Lord. One of the ways I I have experienced this in churches is uh, some churches that foment strong opinions about the value of, of one English translation of the Scriptures. In some cases, they require new foreign translations to start with a particular English translation. In many churches across our nation, we've got churches or pastors who will brag and boast that they have not abandoned a particular English translation that was created originally in the 1600s. And this vehement boasting about a translation, however, I, I believe often causes believers to lose focus on the one who is most important. Conversations become all about one English version of the Bible Instead of Christ, I want to suggest that this sort of ministry runs the risk of being made up in some ways of wood, hay, and straw at the Bema. I don't particularly believe that the God of all of the nations will ask us what English translation of the Scripture we used 
throughout our lives. The whole issue, in some ways, speaks of English pride or Anglo-Saxon pride. Instead, we must show pride in Christ. He is the one and only proper foundation. And we must not do anything that would draw people's focus away from him crucified. Now go back to the text in verse 13. I'm done drawing applications. You can uh, take comfort again. Uh, Verse 13. If you look down in this verse, he says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So we look in verse 13, we learn that something will be revealed by fire. Near the end of that verse, it says, because it will be revealed by fire. And there's controversy about what the word it speaks of here. It could be the works of different ministers will be revealed by the fire. Or better yet, I think what he's saying is the day. The day of future judgment will be revealed or accompanied by fire. So I think what he's saying here is there's coming a future day of judgment that, uh, and you'll know the day because it will be accompanied with fire. So I think he's talking in reference to the day of future judgment of believers. The word fire here speaks of the consuming ability of the examination of Christ. Did you get that? The consuming ability of the examination of Christ. I want you to notice that the fire will try or test the nature of each one's work. So I think the point that Paul's making in our text is in the future, in heaven, fiery judgment will test the work of Christian laborers of the gospel. Okay. So again, let me just draw a few points of application for us. If that is true, I mean, if what Paul is saying here is true, there are a few applications we should consider. One, each one of us should be careful in how we live our Christian life. Right? If there is coming a day, like Romans says, and 2 Corinthians says, and 1 Corinthians here says, where we will stand before the Lord, we better be careful how we live our lives for Christ. If we are living in some sort of ongoing sinful practice, my strong pastoral admonition to you would be for you to consider that and reject it. Because we're all going to be held accountable one day. That's one application for us. The second application, I think, has to do with the the context of what's going on here. And that is, I think this also means that some of the wisdom that creeps into the church, the world's wisdom, that creeps into the church will not be revealed or manifested until that time in the future. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that some of the wood, hay, and stubble that Christian ministers of the gospel are using in the church today will not be obvious or apparent until the day we see the Lord. So what does that mean for the church of Corinth? What does that mean for us? I think it means this. You better be careful who you follow. Right? Don't just line up after different teachers in the church as if they offer infallible teaching and doctrine for you. 
Because one day, their deeds will be made known, and that day is in the future in heaven. The future in heaven. This means we cannot allow our opinion of ministry or status quo in American churches to dictate what we do. Instead, we must compare our teaching, our methods in church, to the Scriptures. Our works are important. At least to verse 14, we'll pick up the speed a bit, where I think he describes the reward of worthy leaders. Verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. I want you to notice one thing in your Bibles. If you look down at verse 14, and you see the first word, if, then also look at verse 15, notice the first word there, if, and the first word of verse 17, right? If. Paul gives three conditional statements here. And what he is suggesting is that some laborers in the church will meet the conditions that he describes and, so, and others will not. Some men's work will abide while other laborers in the gospel, their work will be consumed. Some men's work will be burned down, and some will not. Some laborers will defile the temple of God, while others will not. And so looking back at verse 14 again, there is a promise of reward to those who are faithful in the ministry. Specifically, the text says, if anyone's work abides, he will receive a a reward. He was describing, again, I think the day of the Lord in the future where the work of believers will be exposed and tested and those who, whose work remains will receive rewards. Believers will receive crowns that they can cast at the feet of the Lord for faithful ministry to Christ. So he's saying their worthy leaders will receive a reward. That is the outcome of worthy ministry. For our last 10 minutes this this morning, I want to look at the other outcome. And uh, I would describe it this way. Unworthy leaders, number two in your notes, unworthy leaders will be dealt with by God. Verses 15 through 17. By the time we get to verse 15 in the text, I think we come to Paul's ultimate purpose for the paragraph. And that is that all human leaders will be held accountable for what they do in the church. Some will receive reward, but others, mentioned verses 15 through 17, will suffer a different fate. Actually, there are two ways in which unworthy leaders will be dealt with by God here. Uh, My first uh, letter A is first, unworthy leaders will experience a lack of reward in heaven. Paul says, if anyone's work, verse 15, is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. To those people who know Jesus Christ, yet use foolish or man-centered philosophy in the church, this is what they should expect, a lack of reward. The text says, actually, that their work will be burned up. 
which is kind of our English way of saying the Greek concept here. The Greek concept could actually be translated, it will be burned down. Burned down, because uh, the imagery would, would be used frequently of fires and the destructive force of fires in burning down a field, or in some cases, like Corinth, just 100 years before Paul writes this, the entire city being hazed and burned down to the ground so that nothing remains. So Paul says this, that if someone is unworthy, their work will be burned down and that they will suffer loss. You see that in your Bible? Verse 15, they will suffer loss. Each one of these words is important if we're going to understand the nature of what the future judgment of believers will be like. As we look at this text and and understand these words, suffer loss, they're uh, not the normal words for punishment used in the New Testament. But the actual word that's used behind them speaks or means to deprive someone of something. Okay, suffer loss means to deprive someone of something. This speaks of a form of judgment that takes away privilege. So that this loss, in my opinion, is the loss of reward or perhaps the loss of of, uh, experienced by watching your works be destroyed by fire. Looking again at the end of verse 15, however, as bad as it gets for the Christian minister, he himself will be saved as through fire, which is an idiom meaning he will escape with some difficulty. He will have a narrow escape. In English, we talk about escaping by the skin of your teeth, right? which I don't know what the skin of teeth are. It sounds pretty disgusting. But it means to narrowly escape something. And so as Paul's describing the future time where believers will be held accountable, he talks about some leaders in the church who will have a narrow escape. They'll still be there. They'll still enjoy the pleasures of heaven forevermore, but they won't have much at all to offer to the Lord. Because they followed worldly wisdom in practice and emphasis in their ministry in the assembly of God. And so let me just summarize here. I think it's best to see the future judgment of believers not as a movie screen reenactment of all of our sins. Or as a time of utmost rejoicing, but as a time when the works of Christians will be judged. I do not believe that our sin will be on the table at the judgment seat of believers. But the claims and the condemnations from my past and present will not be what is there because Christ's blood covers all of my sins. So if Satan were to get access in heaven to God at the end and and ask or say, do you know everything that Brent Belford did when he was on earth that offended you? I think God would respond something like this. No, I don't remember any of those things. Get away from here, accuser. Covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. But what will be on the table? Not my sin, but works done for Christ since conversion. 
our works will be passed through the fire. And some will survive while others will be burned down. The works that survive the judgment will bring reward. And we will properly dispense those, right, at the feet of the one who made it all possible. So to be clear, the judgment of believers, I believe, is a judgment of the works and motives of believers. And I have no problem in saying it's a judgment of works because the only people who are there are the people who have faith in Jesus Christ. It's not the reason you're there. You're there because you believe in Jesus, him alone for your salvation. But for all those people who will be there, their works will be scrutinized. Their motives will be scrutinized. And I don't have a problem with our works being scrutinized because every good work that a believer performs is a direct result of the enablement of God, the power of the Holy Spirit of God, and the glory for any good work that I will ever perform goes solely to the one who enabled me to do it. All for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ, God the Father. And the worst part of this judgment, in my opinion, will not be the painful reliving of all of my sinful actions, thoughts, and motives since conversion but it will be the lack of much reward to offer the Lord. Say, is there any sadness involved in the future judgment of ministers of the gospel? Say, yes. I think that when we see him, the one who redeemed us, and when we consider briefly all of the other things we could have done, Lack of reward at that moment, or lack of much reward for Christian laborers will be judgment enough. And so unworthy leaders, they will experience a lack of reward. But look with me at verses 16 and 17. We'll wrap up this passage. Second, unworthy leaders will also experience divine retribution. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Her lack of eternal reward, or much eternal reward, is not the only fate that unworthy ministers of the gospel might expect. But in verses 16 and 17, and they're kind of hard to figure out exactly of what Paul is describing here. I mean, the picture is clear in some sense, but it's harder in others. That in these verses, he seems to describe the type of divine retribution that this sort of teacher or preacher should expect. And so to develop this idea quickly, Paul transitions without a conjunction to a rebuke with this question, don't you know? He asks this question 10 times in 1 Corinthians, don't you know this? And, and it's, it's meant as a rebuke in most cases. You should know this. Something should be clear to you. And the specific piece of information that they all should know is that they collectively are the temple of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says that you, and it's plural, you as a whole, all of us in the assembly are God's temple. 
In 1 Corinthians 6, he will describe the fact that the individual body of believers are also the temple of God. But here he's saying the church collectively is God's temple. You got that chapter 3, 1 Corinthians 3. This is about the church as a whole. That's what they should know. Okay, but let's look at it a little bit more. The word that Paul uses for temple here is not your ordinary word for the temple used in the Septuagint that described the whole building, the outer courts, the precepts, and so on, or the precincts of the temple, but this is a more precise term in your Old Testament Bible, the Septuagint, used of the holy of holies. Naos is the word to describe the Holy of Holies. And so Paul uses that word to describe the church collectively. In the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was God's special dwelling place on earth. Right? Remember enough of the Old Testament to know that the the Old Covenant kept men and women at a distance from God on their own request. Genesis and Exodus, they're afraid of being consumed thoroughly. And so God devises a way for some level of fellowship to occur. And the way this would happen would be that once a year, right? Once a year, a priest would be allowed into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt on earth in this time. Yet now, with this word, Paul is showing us that the Holy of Holies, the holiest, is open And we, the church, are it. See, men and women, God desires holy of holy worshipers. Close fellowship with mankind. People who can enjoy fellowship with him. And he created that in us, the gathered assembly of Christ. Okay, so you've got to be following with me because it's going to pick up here in a second. So in verse 16. Do you not know that you collectively are the temple of God? Okay, but then in verse 17, he says, now let me talk about a person who would do something to God's temple. Verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, the church, God will destroy him. The words destroys and will destroy come from the same root word in the original. The only difference between them is tense and number. And so you could, the the idea is something like this. If you presently, actively defile the church of God, his holy people, God will ultimately in the future, return the favor. Unworthy leaders will be held accountable by God through direct divine retribution. So the controversy with this idea in verses 16 and 17 is, is he talking about what happens on planet Earth or what they will receive in the future? I think it's my opinion what those people who are corrupting the church might suspect or should expect would happen to them on planet earth for their defiling of the house of God. 
Listen, in, in the Old Testament, did God take it seriously if anyone defiled his temple, his house? Yes. I think Paul is saying the same thing is true in the New Testament. If you mess with God's house, the church collectively, God's going to mess with you. He will answer you in proportion to your labor. So, don't boast in human leaders. For all believers are servants of God who cannot produce fruit left themselves. And all believers will be held accountable for the way that they minister or labor in the assembly. Let's close with a quiet moment of reflection there at your pew. If you bow your head and close your eyes, I want you to take a moment to consider seriously your influence in this assembly. Perhaps you could ask yourselves these questions. Do you point others to Christ in the assembly? True biblical foundation is Jesus Christ, Him crucified. And anyone who builds on that better use materials that would be similar. Do you point others to Christ with your focus and joy in Christ? You point others to Christ in this assembly with the words that you use. Consider the words that you've used with others in the assembly. Are they about Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Is that like the one thing that you're proud of and you're boasting in? It comes out in your language. And you point others in this assembly to Christ with the way that you live your life the way that you live your life. Are there sinful practices in your life for which one day you'll be held accountable? My encouragement to you is if the answer to any of these things is no, that you would quickly repent of that sin and then ask God for His grace. I mean, you cannot change the past. But you can, you can ask God to give you strength so that in your life, you would point all other people to Christ. Your joy in Christ, your words about Him, and the way you live your life. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for our time together this morning. I pray that you would use it for your honor and your glory. We're grateful for the text of Scripture. We know, Lord, that this was a bigger text to work through, but it was just such a rewarding passage for us this morning. I pray, dear Father, that we might keep in mind one day that we'll all be held accountable. And Lord, because of that, I pray that we would point others to Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.